thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is with Lena Haug, and she talks to us today about her journey going from horse training to getting her pilot's license, as well as how she's preparing herself to do the Mongol Derby this summer. Hope you enjoy. Well, horses came into my life, I think mainly because I was in love with them. And I had a best friend growing up and her dad was a vet. And so I spent a lot of time at their house and they had horses in the backyard and she actually trained in eventing. And so we'd go over to her barn for her lessons and things just kind of rolled into, I found a different stables that was much more my pace. I was never really competitive with my horse horsemanship. I was more in awe and wanted to be around them and spend time with them and didn't want to necessarily just compete. So this woman had, she had like 50 horses. It was wild. And it was kind of a wild scene. The, the barn, it was a little bit more, um, fend for yourself free range exactly (laughs) how old were you at this time i was six and so i was able to trade you know cleaning paddocks and all that you know jazz that it's kids dream in order to spend time with her horses and there was a community of young girls and we were like a little pack of wolves and so my upbringing with horses was so free like we didn't have tack we had this whole property, there was an arena, but no fence on it. So we'd often run in and out of the arena. <laughs> we'd ride backwards, we'd ride forwards, we'd jump each other, we'd, we'd spend the night there. And I remember my mom, she would always drop me off at the gate and she had no idea. I was like, she she can't drive up there because she'll see how wild we are. <laughs> We're like feral children with equines, you know? So that was kind of my, my beginning into horses. And luckily that beginning was all based on the natural horsemanship background and again there was really no competing there was like play days we'd go to or every now and then a clinician would come into town and we'd all haul out and watch them or do you remember specifically any clinicians a probably instructor david lichman that we would go to his clinics or watch and he was really into like playing and teaching a horse to rear and lay down and i was like infatuated with that type of thing where i would wanted to be a horse and be with my horse and kind of blend together that way so That was kind of my intro into the horse world. And quickly out of that, we would go to the fairgrounds and perform essentially. And people would ask, you know, oh, will you teach me and teach my horse? And this is like, I was probably like 14 or 15 at this point. So that quickly turned into an income too, you know, where I was playing with horses and totally understood the way that they worked in, in the sense of like, prey animal their fear their the way what motivated them what would make them you know scared or or flighty from something and that was a mystery to so many of these horse owners and i'd be like what's wrong with you how can you not tell that that's like not gonna work yeah would you mostly teach the horses or the people or both it's a great question like when i was younger it was mostly just horses and i learned you know as i got older that was really not the answer it's like handing over a really tuned you know thinking processing horse to someone that's totally ignorant to the fact that they're jerking on their face is horrendous it was just awful so I ended up after that just teaching yeah uh and then what was school like for you did you I like school I went to a Waldorf school um k through 12 and 
I did spend a lot of time faking being sick and <laughs> riding my bike out to the barn. Yep. <laughs> or, uh, you know, escaping and going to my horse. You know, overall, I really do like to learn. Uh, education was a pleasant experience overall. Yeah. Did you go to college? I did. I did my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz and I did political geography. Studied political oh, geography. Interesting. Did you have like a plan for that? Um, well, I started as biochem major because I want to go into vet school. I loved, at this point, I was like, had cults that I was starting, you know, I actually brought my kind of quote-unquote training business as a, how old was I, I don't know, 19, to um, Santa Cruz into the mountains there to stables. Mm -hmm. And at any given time, I had, you know, one to three horses in training. So by then you were kind of starting? Yeah, I was starting horses and then putting miles on horses, which was amazing. Like I was able to put myself through college with that. But I also realized that I was like, oh, maybe I should go into a different industry. So that's where our vet school was seemed like an interesting path. But chemistry just slayed me down. <laughs> so yeah. I decided to swap majors and did this political geography major, which was amazing. It's like politics, sociology blended with social justice. Had you had any jobs that weren't horse related? After university, I moved to Tahoe to be a little ski bum. I brought my horses with me. They lived in a, a valley called Sierraville, which it was amazing. It was like a 500-acre cattle ranch that backed up to National Forest. Oh, wow. So I would just go on these, like, endless rides out into the mountains in the snow. It was so fun. But I worked at a sushi restaurant for a couple months. I worked as a ski instructor. The and Tahoe. then I moved back to Sonoma County. And then Sonoma. So what yeah. brought you back to Sonoma County? It was a really bad snow season, and I, I, that time in Tahoe really felt like it was just like a short, I was like, okay, I'm going to just stay here this season and start my business back up. And then I really went full swing into training and was working at a various different barns, referral basis only, really. I had a website, but if you, if you do good work, people will find you, and then I was book solid, like nonstop. Really, my focus was on teaching. Teaching the humans. Mm -hmm. yeah. At that point, it was like, unless we're on the same page, I'm not going to ride your horse because it's... What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think people were seeking you? What were you teaching them that they didn't find in others? That's a great question. My horsemanship evolved from, you know, the, the classic natural horsemanship where you're looking at pressure and release and, and teaching the horse neutral to like really diving deeper into what, what are your insides saying? Like, what's your heart saying? What's your mind saying? Is there a positive place? I think a really good example of, of this is like if you're asking your horse to turn left, are you only adding pressure or are you giving them a space to enter into? And I started to find that horses would fill a space more than in, I guess the way I want to say it is like, if you could have a language with your horse where you could open a space up versus drive them into it, you had a horse that was seeking versus avoiding. And like in a nutshell, the training and the horsemanship really evolved out of that kind of attitude. And and the horse, you could just see a difference in the horses and the quality of the performance was much more educated versus avoidant. Did that just kind of evolve naturally for you or you watched or? It evolved, but I've also had amazing teachers along the way, like fantastic. I think a huge influence was when I was 15, I had gone to a clinic with David Ellis, who's also a Prelly instructor. And I had stayed in touch with him and I asked if I could intern with him. And I was literally like 15 years old and during summer break, my mom drove me down to his ranch and dropped me off. And he, I remember his face when he saw that my mom was dropping me off and he was like, oh, how old are you? <laughs> and I was like 15 and he was like, oh God. <laughs> Cause I think he thought, well, he did think I was over 18 at that point. And he was like, well, you drove, it's, I don't know, it was like nine hours away. He let me stay. And then from then on out, I spent every winter and summer interning with him. And it was 
I don't know how many, I think he's got 500 acres. He always had horses in training. He was always doing clinics everywhere and he just took me under his wing and let me, you know, get lessons and rode with him and basically was his shadow for that time and hugely influential Yeah. on so many levels. Also very much an influence of my love for like being in the outdoors because I at first I just like lived under on a cot under an oak tree all summer like <laughs> really great. primitive living yeah. <laughs> for a young teenager. Later in like my mid-20s I was introduced to Amy Brimhall McCord who took my horsemanship to an entirely different level like you know how to do all the things you can get a horse to do anything but can you make it magic basically was where it went it was like what, what can you talk about with your horse in your head and your heart and that's that was a huge shift for me i think in most horsemanship you get this there's a right answer and you're gonna kind of meander and, and finagle your way with your horse and sometimes it feels kind of manipulative till you get to the one answer and amy really taught me well, what does it look like if there isn't a right answer and and what would it look like if your horse just you know, through a fit and you were like, well, that's where we are today and really accepted it. And it's amazing because it, at first it felt like, well, why I'm not even training an animal right now. And it, it brought me to this like huge journey of understanding or just kind of realizing we have horses and we don't need them for, we don't need them for war. We don't need them for transportation. We don't need them for, you know, this is an art and like, how can my horsemanship be as artistic as possible and that's where I found like if I if I exhale and like bubble up energy through my feet my horse can rear from that you know and I don't have to give him a cue I don't have to give him like I can just like build energy in me and then send it out and my horse can capture it and take it and run with it and that's crazy to me like that was wild to feel that I had the ability to sit on my horse and from a standstill get a canter to part without doing anything but you know thinking it thinking it yeah. willing it like willing it and I wanted that I, I I knew it was possible I had tons of moments of it but my quote-unquote training and my you know time with various trainers and they're all amazing it's just this took it to that next level yeah do you think that that's some this what you're talking about can be taught or is it something that specific people have I think it can be taught it can't be taught I think it can be taught yeah I think it's harder it, to learn for others than some, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like some people have a really bad sense of direction. If every morning you woke up and three times a day you oriented yourself by your cardinal directions, you'd probably get a better sense of direction. It's the same True. thing. Like, some people are just less in tune with the energy and feeling around them, but you can learn it. Three years ago, I basically had decided that I did not want to make my, my income my horses. You know, that feeling of my horses as an art form really just kept growing and it was like a creative space for me and in a love, like such a deep love. And when you make your money with the creative and love, it can put a lot of pressure on it. So I turned a whole different direction. I was like, what work would let me just work really hard for a few days and then take time off and just let me be timeless because I I crave that I need that and I decided to become a pilot it was one of those things of like incredible amount to learn you know it's a machine to operate and you fly and you travel and it was like I'm I just like love adventure and new things and seeing what's possible out there you know what's the limits so becoming a pilot felt I'm very intrigued by it. My great-grandmother was a pilot in World War II. So it's in your blood. It's in my blood, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ended up moving up to northern Idaho to learn how to fly. I brought Why my horse there? with me. 
Well, my best friends had moved there a year prior, and okay. so I'd visited a bunch, and it was just beautiful mountains and wild land, and it's a lot cheaper to learn how to fly, and I wanted to explore all those areas, so moved up there and ended up falling in love with the land and the people and the community, and so became a pilot and got my instrument rating. I'm almost done with my commercial rating now, and my horse unfortunately passed away really suddenly when I was up there, but I have a new little horse. Pilot school is amazing. I mean, I did it privately, so my, I have an instructor. It's, he doesn't. He has his own little school. It's it's kind of a bizarre feeling to add throttle and go hurling down a runway, and then suddenly you're just like <laughs> in the afloat. air. Yeah, it's a little bit like magic. <laughs> it's a little like magic. And the thing with learning how to fly, you have to learn everything. You have to learn aerodynamics. You have to learn regulations. You have to learn how to actually fly the airplane. You have to learn everything that could go wrong and how to fix it and what to do. You have to learn how to talk to on the radio. You have to learn... All the language. All the language. You have to learn every thousands of acronyms. Do you remember your first time flying and what that was like for you? Yeah. I was like, this is wild. <laughs> and immediately, like, my instructor is so cool. He's in his late 70s and he's done everything, flown everywhere all over the world. And he immediately was like, no, you're flying. I was like, well, I don't know how to. He's like, well, that's the point. We're going to learn together. But you're flying. I was like, oh, God. Is there... Both of them have controls, and then he can, like, make just your side? Uh, it's both. It's all... These are really old planes, so it's all, like, for your feet, controls your yaw, which is your nose and tail direction, and then your yoke, which is, like, a steering wheel, controls the aileron, which is lifts you know, the wing up and down. And then you want to make controlled turns. But, yeah, the throttle's on your side, on the left seat, which is the where I was sitting. It's the... Usually the main controls are on that side, and I mean, it's really, it's pretty straightforward. Really what makes it complicated is when things go wrong, and so, yeah. and memorizing what to do and what order, and... And how do you learn that? A lot of repetition on, on the ground, like ground school, and memorizing things. You have to do written exams, oral exam, and then a flight exam, so like, to get any of your licenses, it's pretty aggressive. I have never had a nosedive. I've done spin training, which is, I guess... Dropping and spinning? Yeah, well, that's kind of a nosedive where, like, you do a false correction from a stall. A stall is, like, let's say you pull back without enough power and you lose lift, which is, like, there's not enough air over the wing. This gives me adrenaline just... So <laughs> it'll basically... You're, like, pointing the nose straight up and then basically it can't fly anymore because there's no air over the wing and it will bank to one side or the other. And if you don't correct that, it will turn into a spin, which is your nose is down and you're spiraling out. The problem with that is you lose the elevation really, really quickly. So spin training, you'll do it at a higher, you know, you'll fly pretty high and then practice it. And it's it's pretty easy in the planes that I fly. They want to level out. They don't want to do what that's doing. Hopefully that's easy in most planes. It's not. Oh, God. <laughs> You'd some think that they would make them where that is easy well, to Well, some fix. people want it for, like, aerobatics and stuff. They sure, want to do yeah. that kind of thing. But, Crazy um, people. Yeah. <laughs> How often do you fly? Well, in the winter, it's touch and go just because of weather, fog, thundercloud, you know, thunderstorms, all that kind of stuff will deter you from flying small planes. So I just have my single engine. So. And what's the goal <clears throat> with this? Piloting for a career. So I, again, like I wanted to move away from training full time and flying is, first of all, there's only like 3% of aviation is women. So I've had like... 3%? Yeah. <laughs> so when people hear that I want to go into training, there there's thousands of scholarships and jobs and people are like flagging you in the direction. They just want to help you in any way they can to get you in a professional setting. So I've spent some time now in bigger aircraft like jets and stuff and that's wonderful and there's a lot of money in it, but I am really interested in small planes. I really want to do some bush plane flying in Alaska, get my hours up and... Like private planes 
for people to Alaska? What These this? no, this is like for tours. Any like in Alaska, they have so little road access to a lot of places that everything's planes. So you could you know move kids to school. You can move oh, wow. trans like groceries. You can move packages. You can pick up people where they need to go and drop them off. There's just a lot of things are plane transported. Yeah. Damn, that's so far from my reality. <laughs> Get my groceries from the plane. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other thing is, like, I have to be really realistic in the fact that airplanes are a terrible impact on the environment, and I know that, and I, like, I'm just chuckling to myself thinking about it, because it is one of those things, like, in order to get any job, you usually need about 1,200 hours of flight time, and that's just so much fuel, like, you know, sometimes my buddy and I will go fly for three hours just to go get a hip like a burger because we just need hours and it's just ridiculous so there are a lot of really incredible aviation technologies that are like starting to emerge and I think in that I'm really excited to like what if I could fly you know these electric airplanes or hydrogen engines or you know there's there's new things coming out that could make air travel much better for the environment and I don't see in any way that air travel is going anywhere yeah. it's just not I don't think in my lifetime at least so no. COVID might put it stall it for a second exactly <laughs> but everyone's gonna want to go places yeah. yeah so while you were getting your pilot license and stuff you still had your horse did that just look like you having fun you weren't doing any horse training anymore I was I still like you know I had two or three horses that I would go ride for people yeah <laughs> including my one mare that I so I had two mares that I got called about that needed starting they were three and a half both of them were little mustangs and they were so perfect the owners did an amazing job preparing them when I started working with them, I was like, easy. We could easily transition from ground to their backs. And so that was the same time as, you know, learning how to fly. So as much as I'd say, like, I didn't make horses my income entirely, I was definitely still dabbling yeah. <laughs> on the side. But very, like, just picking and choosing what felt right. Circling to just different places and experiences with horses. In 12th grade, I was all set to go to university, again, for the biochem thing. And I just, I was like, I need a break. I need a break and I had some credits because my, my mom's side of the family is all in Germany and so I had some credits to go to Germany at the time but the family member I was supposed to go visit had passed away by, by that point so I had these credits and I decided to go to South America as a 17 year old instead instead and so <laughs> I, I flew down to Santiago Chile and I ended up getting a job a little south of there in a town called Pucon, which is kind of the northernmost part of Patagonia as a tour guide. It was equine uh, like travel, basically. So oh. people would go on one to 12 day trips into the Andes on horseback and I was their guide. I'm pretty sure I got there and then got the job. And it really helped. So I speak three languages. I speak English, German and Spanish. Hmm. And a lot of the tourists uh, from Europe are German and they come over to Chile. I had no idea this was a thing. So I ended up working as a translator and basically was like the customer, you know, experience type of person. I'd go on these rides and they were incredible. We would go for 10 days into the Andes and just like out in the back country riding and exploring and meeting people. And, you know, I didn't have a phone. I didn't, I just... None of it mattered. None of it mattered. It was incredible. And it was wild. I mean, shit went down. <laughs> people like horses would like... They'd go lame and we'd end up eating them. Like, not not us and the tourists, but, like, me and the guides. They'd, they'd be like, all right, well, this is... Like, they would, like, literally, like, well, that would be the way we'd deal with it. Or you'd <laughs> literally like, eat it? Yeah, they, they would eat their horses that would huh. go too lame. 
um, or, you know, we'd one, oh my God, this is a trip. So one, one day it was, I think my horse went lame. We dropped it off at a, at a farm that one of the other guides knew was around. And then him and I rode doubles for eight days. Like, were you in the front? In the, in the back. <laughs> I know. Not I'm that that like matters. The lady yeah. in the front there. But I mean, I was like, that kind of shit doesn't happen in the U.S. You know, if something goes wrong, it's like you call for help. But there it was like, no, we're just going to keep going. You're just going to ride in the back. That whole experience changed my view of what a, like, just being in the backcountry, being wild, more feral, Lena time. Well, it's more free range, like, kind of how you grew Exactly. <laughs> but to a totally different level where I was, like, amongst other adults. And I ended up getting really, really sick when I was there. I got tonsillitis and I went septic. And I was out on a trip when it got really, really bad, and the, the guides were so funny. They were, like, just handing me Pisco Sour, which is, like, a vodka-type drink, and I was just, to like... To cleanse your system. To try and cleanse my system, and I was just, like, wasted and so sick. Oh. But they had me get on a horse and ride to the nearest town where I got went to a doctor and got antibiotics, exactly. And I remember being really, really sick. Were you scared? Like, what were your emotions? Just so feverish. I Couldn't like, even have emotions? Yeah, I was, like, past the emotion stage, and I've always been pretty like maybe too tough to a fault as a kid where I just wouldn't exactly tell them how bad it was. It was bad. I was like delusional. Really? Yeah. Because of the vodka or because of the... Hard to tell. (laughs) Not sure which (laughs) one. Maybe both. (laughs) So then you got better, of course. How long were you out there? I was there for about seven months. One of the tours, we would go over the Andes into Argentina and at the Argentinian border, I'd get my passport stamped so I could stay longer. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) And I have like pictures of me like galloping through the border. That's crazy. (laughs) What a crazy experience. I mean, every little village we'd go through, we'd buy, you know, little bags of loaves of bread and beer and often we'd buy a goat or a sheep and we'd pony it along and then butcher it and eat it and barbecue it it was wonderful yeah just incredible backcountry experience so what was the feeling coming back i just remember and it was the same thing coming back from the ranch that i would intern at was just fences like there was nowhere i could just pick up a canner and just like go going just keep going and I have a huge nostalgia for that. Like, if I go daydreaming, that's what I, I yeah. yearn after. It's just, like, open move land. forward. Open land. Yeah. I think just that was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Mongol Derby. This is, like, the the peak of my existence. <laughs> I told my friends, I don't know what I'm going to do next year. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did this idea come up? What was, like, have you been wanting to do this for a long time? It... Got on my radar, a friend of mine had mentioned the documentary on it. It's called All the Wild Horses. And I think it was maybe five years ago they did it, maybe more. And it was a documentary about the Mongol Derby. And I had watched it and then I looked into it and I looked it up. And I remember at the time I was really focused on my, my training business. And I was like, this is something I have to do at some point. It's kind of culminates all the things I love, which is just like wide open spaces and like challenging yourself and feeling like extreme second degree of fun where you look back and you're happy about it. But during it, you're just (laughs) inwardly in pain. (laughs) Barely surviving. Barely surviving. There's like the navigation portion. That's the part that would ruin me. (laughs) <laughs> I literally would have no idea which even out of my driveway half the time I oh my the wrong god direction. that's hilarious yeah I would not you get lost yeah the like survival skills the horsemanship just being flexible mentally from moment to moment of like problem solving what do you do now this is going wrong what's what what do I do how do I handle it so anyways I had I had kind of put it on the back burner and then I live now in northern Idaho and 
I started looking into it again and I thought, you know, like I should just apply and see what happens. My friend totally encouraged me and, and I did. And then I got a call back and I was like, wow, this is actually happening. And then I realized how much it cost. And I was like, there is no way. And in one of my phone calls with one of the guys that interviews you initially, he, he kind of gave me some ideas of fundraising. He's like, you can make the money. People do it all the time. It's not a big, you know, it's not that hard. It seems like a lot. It's about 1500 14500 for the race. And, and that's I, not including gear and all the other stuff. Well, it does. It, it includes all your horses. It includes your GPS. It includes a saddle, pad, and bridle, and all the food along the way. Oh, wow. And housing. So, and by housing, I mean... <laughs> Um, <laughs> like basically you're traveling from one nomadic family's gear system. Gears are their word for yurt and, and that's their home. And so you're basically hopefully navigating from one homestead to another and, and they'll feed you and we can go into like the food and all that too. But yeah, if you want to explain a little bit about the Derby. Yeah. So the, the Mongol Derby is. And it's Mongol, not Mongolian. Yeah. Okay. They call it the Mongol Derby, the great Mongol Derby. It's a thousand kilometer horse race, which is about 620 miles. And it goes across Mongolia following Genghis Khan had a mail route that kind of followed this general direction and path and length. And a couple guys had gone out there, I'm not exactly sure where they're from, but I know one's from the US, and done this crazy ride. And they're like, we should make this into a race. And it just became this you know, huge feat for people to train for and ride because it's not only really fucking far, it is a challenging environment, challenging in the sense that, you know, the horses are relatively feral, challenging in that we're doing this in a, as a speed thing. It's not like we're doing it in at a, you know, walk or trot. Like, you're, you're busting to get from one point to the other. Most people do it in around 10 days. Seven would be really crushing it. Every, like, 20 mile, 25 miles, you swap horses. So throughout the entire race, you're riding about 40 different horses. And you don't know which horse you're going to get. It's first come, first serve when you get to the, the waypoints, which are the, where, like, the gurs are. And you have some support there. We've got doctors, like, human doctors, veterinarians at every station because they're going to take your horse's heart rate and, like, an overall medical review of how they're doing. So you can't just ride your horse down to the ground and like burst their hearts you you really have to take care you know the suggestion is uh, you know when you first hop on one of the horses they say try and get it pointed in the right direction because other than that it's just gonna run and you have very little control you know you're following a gps a handheld gps and if you're starting to get close uh, maybe like a mile away really try and pull back to a walk and walk them in because it'll bring their heart rate down i think every horse is going to be different some you may want to actually hop off and walk some, you know, maybe don't want to hop off and walk because they don't know how to be led. <laughs> like, yeah. I was going to say that also just hop, you might not be able to just hop off. Yeah, it you may. You off. <laughs> it may buck you off and yeah. you will be dragged to the next station. People have asked a lot, like, why are these horses so wild? And I'm like, in order to survive in Mongolia, I mean, Mongolia is placed between China and Russia. And it's just, a, it's big and it's vast and it's harsh conditions and seasons and they turn the horses loose most of the time. They're kind of wild. And and that keeps the horses safe. And it's also, culturally speaking, I, it's kind of representation of the strength of the families. So the more wild and big their herds are, the stronger the core value of the families are. 
and I, I appreciate it. Like, they associate, like, a, a stallion's mane with, like, they never cut it. They will never cut a stallion's mane because, like, the wildness, the, the tangles, the length of it represents the strength of the herd and the family. Do they cut the mare's manes? They cut the mare's manes. They cut the gelding's manes. Most of the mares apparently are, are used for milk. So breeding oh, so it's mostly milk. geldings and stallions mm-hmm. that you'll be riding. Exactly. Is there any advice on, or like, what that looks like when you do go from station to station and switch horses? Like, how what horse to choose? Or how, like, do you just go based off <laughs> energy in that moment? Well, it's so wild because these horses look so different than our horses. They're basically ponies. They're like... 12 hands, 13 hands, maybe 14 if you're like, if you get a big one. And, you know, they look really like a primitive little horse. They're narrow backed, uh, thin legs, kind of stocky fetlock, but like, you know, otherwise very knobbly little knees. And they're apparently faster than hell (laughs) and crazy fit for just being you know what they do when you get from station to station i believe you get help taking your saddle off because you keep the same saddle and then are they already bridled and waiting for you uh yes okay yes so they're they're all kind of strung up on a string like highlined basically okay but i so back to the question of like how do you choose one i really am going to heavily rely on the herders you know, the mm-hmm. ones that own them and just ask them. I've been told they do bartering. <laughs> okay. I love that. Yeah. I can barter. Yeah. I bartered my coffee this morning. Ooh. <laughs> and you're not even out there. And I'm not even there you're yet. in a city. <laughs> yeah. What are you most nervous about? That's a really good question. I think about this a lot. Um, I think, I don't know if you guys have ever been, you know, if you've ever been taken off with a horse. Like, it just is a shitty feeling. <laughs> no control. No control, and it's just, like, blasting, and I've had that happen, and, you know, horses, when they're running out of control, they don't necessarily, they're not thinking. And I don't know what these horses, how they're different. In in South America, those little horses were never really trained, but they were so good. And I'm curious about the difference. And I swear those horses were so good because they just, like, they fit into a human world where in all reality a lot of the horses out in here they're they're very pampered and they get domesticated and they get domesticated in a, in a way that's you know they don't get to experience a lot of the the life and the hardships and those horses experience a lot of hardships um and in turn have become very docile and just easy to maneuver so super sure-footed though is also that's what good. i've been told yeah. they they know that land i know it gets like huge prairies and and it's tundra it's mostly flat Mostly flat, rolling hills, but there's a lot of marshes, mm. like marshy land. And so I I'm, I guess there's no real way to practice, you know, having a horse hellbent for leather taking off with you across the prairie because we don't really have that. So that's kind of a, I don't know if it's necessarily a concern, but something that's on my mind, how to prepare for that. How and to then breathe through it. How to breathe through it. I do a lot of like young horse development. I've been on a lot of un- unbroke horses and, you know, had some squirrely ones. And there's definitely like horses that are unsure and, and bucking. And then there's horses that are terrified and bucking. And those two things are very, very different. And the, the terrified ones, it's really scary to ride those ones because they're going to hurt themselves and you're going to likely get hurt too if you don't bail in time. And so I just, understanding that these horses are relatively wild and but to what extent, I guess. 
yeah, hopefully you get at least a few that are confident <laughs> in you and you can be confident in them. Yeah. There are multiple writers. They don't really limit it to certain areas. They definitely, it's, it's a pretty rigorous interview process. Like, I, they have something like three or 4,000 people that apply and only 30 people get in. Oh, wow. With probably a few on the backup list. How do they choose? Like, why do you think you were chosen? That's a great question. I mean, I have a ton of horse free experience. Free-range experience. Free-range experience. <laughs> I sent a video, and the the mare I was riding, I was just starting, so she was a little squirrely, and she, like, canters around this bend. I was, like, riding in the snow. I was, like, <laughs> in snow gear, and she comes around this bend, little canter, and then just, like, drops and rears and drop kicks me, and I'm just, like, giggling, because, you know, when you're riding in fluffy snow, it doesn't really bother me. That was, like, the video clip I sent initially. What made you choose that video? Because I just wanted them to know that I wasn't, you know, I hadn't just done arena riding or just plotted around and that I was capable of handling something other than just like a lesson horse. Yeah. (laughs) Because they don't know any different. They don't know. Like people can say whatever they want to say. They can say I've ridden for the last 20 years, but that doesn't mean that they're actually good riders. I wrote about my experience in South America. I wrote about my experience like training and traveling all over the place. And then... So it's a, it's a writing? You, you write and then send video and then they Mm. call... And talk about the food situation while you're there. The food situation. So that's a really good one. And, like, I am going to ride my best and hardest, but I'm also really excited to be integrated into the culture. And so I don't want to I don't want to blind my experience by trying to... I mean, I'm going to try and win. I'm going to try and ride my hardest. But, again, I want to get to know the culture and the people and the food and the, like, landscape. I want to, like... I want to soak in there's gonna be so much time alone in this in this land and anyways I think a big part of that is food you know when you travel to a new place and you refuse to eat their food that's that's kind of a sad thing and I know a lot of writers will choose to do that because they don't want to get sick you know so they'll bring their own food yeah they'll bring their own food or bring their own snacks I know some people have lived off like those oatmeal packets oh <laughs> I know and, and For getting 10 days. A, like bacterial yeah you that know? doesn't sound like I would want to do anything let alone ride a wild horse totally you just like pooping yourself and throwing up at the same time it's like <laughs> no it might make the horse faster but you're not gonna feel great <laughs> both gonna want to run from you yeah and dehydration I mean those two things together often go hand in hand but so I, I'm gonna bring like a life straw to put on a camelback and I am gonna bring charcoal and antibiotics. Some Pepno Bismol. <laughs> yeah, so just cleansers <laughs> of every kind. Um, but the food they eat a lot of tripe and it's like kind of stews. Mare's milk, like fermented mare's milk, is a cultural staple. Mare of horse. Mare of horse, exactly. And do you know they like to drink alcohol? Do um, not kind. Vodka. Like do you think vodka? you'll partake? A little bit. I don't want to do this hungover. No, that also doesn't sound ideal. No. I also and it's going to make you dehydrated and Totally. So. You know, I could dabble a little bit, but definitely in moderation. I don't think that will be hard. So that's that's kind of the, f- the food situation. Every, every gear that you get to, you get offered food and you're, you're welcome to eat with people. And Do you think they take offense when you say no? I don't know. And I don't, also don't know if it's the same families every year. Do that they would get be any of the money? They do. They and do. And they get a lot of it. And that's a great question is where does the funding go to? A lot of it goes to the vets and the planners and the organization, but the families who own the horses get a huge portion of it as well. Yeah, so, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. In fact, last year they had to cancel the derby, which is when I was actually supposed to ride it. And I know that affected the families pretty pretty gravely. So now this is becoming an income for, for the people. What was it like <clears throat> when they canceled it? Oh, man, I was at work and I was like, I just cried. <laughs> 
It was How because soon before did they cancel it? Almost two months, just under two months. And had you already done fundraising? And I had everything? yes, I'd done a lot of fundraising. I did a GoFundMe. I did like you know articles in the newspapers. I and I got so much support. I was so blown away. People were so excited to live vicariously on this adventure, which I'm so grateful for. But I also was like getting up at 4.30, running in the morning, going to work, then getting off and riding till dark and then doing workouts. And I was beat. I was so tired. And so in some ways it's perfect because I actually just went on a work sabbatical, aka quit in January. And so all I'm doing is riding now. Like I'm just riding die under dusk. And I think that's going to be helpful because I got all my fundraising done. I've been able to do more research and plan it out a little bit better if someone wanted to donate how do they do that the easiest way would be from the gofundme page and that is off of my you know there's links on my website i have a website for this race it's lena haug mongol derby 2021 which is i couldn't (laughs) change the domain but i also have an instagram handle but if you look up my name lena haug l-e-n-a-h-a-u-g so other than riding how are you prepping yourself for all of this I love mountain biking. I bike and I run. So physically, those are kind of the three main things. And yoga, like just stays limber. As far as prepping for like navigation, that's where the piloting comes in handy. I'm really good with a GPS at this point. So that's that's been a good practice. I just came back down to Sonoma County from home, which is in Idaho, to ride. That's really the main thing is I talked to Bob Long who won it. He was 72 when he won it. He's from Boise, Idaho. Amazing guy. And is he the oldest? He's the oldest. Yeah. And he just said, Lena, whatever you do, just ride, 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 ride. Like he said, the race wasn't actually that hard for me. That's what he said, because he had spent the three months before the race riding 60 miles a day. 60 miles a 60 day. 60 miles a day. He was working for an endurance trainer. At 72 just, years old? Yeah. <laughs> 70, you know, whenever. So, and that put into perspective of like, oh, okay, yeah, of course. Anything you want to do in extreme, if you do it in extreme beforehand, that's it not going to... It won't gonna, feel as extreme. It won't feel as extreme. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Damn. The, the unknowns will be, you know, different from time on the saddle, so... Are you prepping your gut in any way? I haven't been. I'm not really sure what to do. I eat kind of like a feral animal, so... I, I guess I could keep doing that. I had friends that were like, you should drink out of the creeks. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, even just eating like goat stew and those kind of things. I don't know if you already do that. but Yeah, I mean, I'm not a picky eater at all. And I, you know, would, I eat, you know. Horse. I've eaten horse. I've, I'll eat uh, gizzard stew. Uh, that, that kind of thing doesn't bother me. I think the real bug would come from, you know, bacteria and water that's in the stews, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really have spent most every summer ton of time in the backcountry backpacking and, you know, filtering water. I'm going to bring water drops to filter water and do my best not to drink dirty water. And by dirty, I just mean, you know, contaminated in some way. Wash your hands. That's a big one. Like, like bring sanitizer? Bring sanitizer yeah. and, and wash hands because most people end up getting sick in the backcountry because they've somehow picked something up on their hands and they ate off of them or something. So, yeah. I've been sick once in my life, and I was in Cuba, and I ate bad tramp and was sick for 48 hours, but, and that's kind of amazing to me, because I really did used to drink in a horse trough. <laughs> oh. So, I, I don't, I... But in Sonoma County, so the water's true. probably... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> not too bad out here. <laughs> so, 
I like to ask everyone, what is something within the community that you'd like to see evolve or change? And then how can you implement that change? I think the biggest thing that I've found for myself is just like timelessness and joy. So I just spent a week in the backcountry skiing actually. And none of us had our phones. We all had moments where we had nothing to say. We had moments where you know, you'd, something would pop into your head and you'd start a conversation and it started this, like, dreamy, dreamy conversations that s I feel like just often aren't happening um, as much. And I absolutely live for that. I live for adventure. I live for these, like, timeless moments that you can't recreate. They just are. And in that, like, even if it's, if it's the horse world, if it's skiing, if it's backcountry, you know, backpacking or whatever, the more that we get on that level just connecting as people the better we're at connecting with anything and everything and it just brings so much joy like when we're out with our horses out in the back country and you see you know a tree or like a beautiful view and you just admire it and your horse just stops and takes a deep breath and all those little moments of just you know you're vibing you're feeling it you're all just being. you're just being you're just being a human being in this world and that's what i would hope we could expand on and just become more accustomed to again. My aunt had this poster she would plaster around San Francisco. It was said, when I'm alone, I touch my phone. And I just, that sometimes <laughs> pops in my head because I'll totally do that in my day to day. Like if I have a moment it's of a stillness, I grab my phone. You just live, I look what time it is. It's ridiculous. It makes me crazy. Yeah. Because when it's not there, instead of grabbing my phone, I just look around. <laughs> yeah. Good answer. Mm -hmm. I like that. How do you like living where you live? You bought a house, right? I did. I bought a house. It's amazing. I think what, what brought me so much joy about living in Northern Idaho was A, the people that have spent quite a bit of time living there have really learned to be a part of nature in a different way. And I don't know if it's just the seasons or the fact that it's like a slower pace of life, less of the hustle and bustle, but it was extraordinary how it pumped the brakes for me in my life. I mean, I can pop on my cross-country skis and ski to the coffee shop in the winter. Damn. <laughs> and I get to, my, my neighbors will come over and they will have a genuine conversation. My, there'll be like a line at the grocery store and the clerk is talking about, you know, asking a question about the person they're serving's kid. And they don't care that the line's 10 people long. They're going to have that conversation. And I just appreciate that. That's kind of exactly like what we were just talking about, that, you know, being in the moment and appreciating not rushing from one thing to the next. So that, that really helped shift my life in a great way, too. It, was, it wasn't, I wasn't living to work. I was working to live and really choosing to live my biggest, brightest life, which constantly circles back to these kind of ridiculous adventures, <laughs> constantly looking for places in nature to go explore. Do you think you've always had this kind of like adrenaline seeking, like where it came from? God, it's so funny because it doesn't feel like adrenaline to me. It feels like a challenge in a way. Yes, I think it's always been in there. I've always sought. And, and, and the things that don't often scare me until, you know, years later where I'm like, holy cow, that was insane. Yeah. How did I, like, what was I, I, I chose that? You know, like ride my horse down the highway so I can go to the 
you know, go to this field that I saw. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I didn't get run over. Yeah. Or, Cool. Well, I'm sure I'll chat with you again after the derby. Okay, yes. It'll be a whole new story. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Not what I anticipated, probably. (laughs) Everything you just said, a whole new story. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, thank you. Hey again. Thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. This is your host, Shauna Burke. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe follow on both Instagram and Facebook, share with all your friends to help spread the word. And if you can, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or leaving five stars on Spotify helps a lot. See you next week.